Hello and welcome to Working Historians, a podcast series where we discuss what historians do with their lives. I am Rob Denning, the Associate Dean for Liberal Arts at Southern New Hampshire University's Global Campus. In our last episode, we met Dr. Adrian Calamel, a professor of history at Finger Lakes Community College, who is walking us through the history of the Arab Spring, which swept through the Middle East at the beginning of this decade. Last time, we talked about the general timeline of the phenomenon, and this time, Adrian, James Fennessy, and I are going to focus on how the Arab Spring played out in two specific countries, Tunisia and Egypt. In upcoming episodes, we will focus on other countries, especially Yemen, Libya, and Syria. So stay tuned for those. Adrian, welcome back. Great to be here, James. Thank you. Definitely. It's great to have you uh, continue on with our Middle Eastern History podcast series. Um, So what topic will we be discussing today? Today we will be looking at the two countries of Tunisia and Egypt. Um, Tunisia was the first country that uh, sparked this uh, wave of revolutions through the, uh, through the Middle East, known as the Arab Spring, and then Egypt uh, quickly soon there followed. So we will be looking at those two countries. Last uh, podcast we looked at some of the reasons and basic factors that are underlying factors that you can kind of spread across different countries. So. We'll see where they're applicable, where they're not. Um, but yeah, Egypt and Tunisia. So um, especially Egypt is just the big one. <laughs> yeah, well, one of the core issues that we talked about last time were the uh, the vestiges of colonialism and um, how country creation or nation formation within the Middle East wasn't necessarily the organic process that we saw in some other areas of the world. And in fact, the creation of distinct countries and nations in the Middle East is why we're in certain situations that we're in today. So do you want to start uh, transitioning a little bit from, you know, some of those larger topics that we discussed last week, and then maybe we can move right into Egypt, since that might be the big one for this week? Yeah, that, that sounds good. So when, when you look at the colonial influence with Tunisia and Egypt, you have to remember that, 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 that Tunisia was under French control from, you know, uh, mid to late 1800s. Um, and Egypt was under basically British control for a long time. They do have both histories of states, but they're under somebody else's thumb. What that did, if you look at the Tunisian experience, um, as well as Egypt, they, they really built up a great education system there in certain fields. And so a lot of people were graduating into the, uh, in, into the business world or in, into um, uh, public sector jobs, and uh, they couldn't find the work. Um, now with Tunisia, uh, you know, it's a smaller country. It is, it does have some oil resources, but you, it's one of these countries that you would consider relatively oil poor. It does not have a real true economy and hadn't tra- transitioned to a real um, uh, a, a globalized type economy, which which ended up hurting them, or maybe it helped them in the long run. Who's to say? Because it did spark. You know the uprisings there. Big part of it was unemployment, people coming into the workplace. And let me preface this by saying that when you look at any revolution that's successful, you're going to have to have broad-based support uh, generally across the population. This is where you see these uprisings and these revolutions uh, successful because it's not just one camp. It's not just uh, labor unions uh, rising up against the government or um, a certain segment of the population. It's really everybody around the country was rising up. And we see that with both Tunisia as well as Egypt. What they have in common, 
they both had leaders that were in place for over 30 years. Another thing that was in, in common with both of these countries, rising unemployment, uh, middle class frustration, were also in subsidies were being removed. Both individuals um, that we look, we'll look at, uh, Ali, uh, Ben Ali from Tunisia, who is the president of Tunisia, and then Hazim Mubarak, they also did something where they kind of stripped the military. Uh, they uh, tried to weaken their influence and they really built up the security services. So what it did was it gave them this, um, you know, security apparatus for domestic control, similar to like, you know, the brown shirts or something like that, um, and took power away from the military. So with both of these countries, the one remarkable thing is that the military stood on the outside and tried to maintain the peace and didn't pick a side with both events. And that could have been um, disastrous. As we've seen with Syria, Libya, it got nasty because of the government's willingness to use force and that they, and then they had a lot of the military was walking hook, line, and sinker with them. So with Tunisia, the main event that everybody looks at is the self-immolation of the one vegetable vendor. James, you remember that? That would spark the, the revolution. I do. Yep, and it's yeah. actually something that we mentioned a little bit uh, in the previous podcast. Yeah, the first set of protests, you know, that, that was kind of the spark. It also, there was a digital component to the Tunisian uh, revolution, which was, which was interesting. It's often um, dubbed like the, the tw uh, Twitter revolution and pushed around that way. Egypt becomes the Facebook revolution, and um, they look at uh, Tunisia as being uh, YouTube-based as far as the digital component, the primary digital component. But uh, you have protests you have the self-immolation of the vegetable vendor after he's locked up, beaten, released, and then he ends up setting himself on fire. And then you have protests on um, December 27th uh, that are going to go all the way to Tunisia. There's trade unions that are organized. You have lawyers, a great number of lawyers. You have over 300 lawyers assemble in protest as well. And they all happen after Friday prayer. Uh, this is something that you'll see where... Islam, which had been widely suppressed under Ben Ali in Tunisia, you'll see that it does have, it does lend to a certain type of organization where it's a given that Friday prayers within Islam, that's going to be your, that's, that's where everybody is going to prayer. So it's easy to mobilize around those. And you'll see that when these countries, when we get into Syria and uh, Libya, they have day of, a uh, day of rage. And it's always after, it's always a Friday. Um, right after Friday prayers. You'll see where um, Islam doesn't play an ideological role in these revolutions. It does play a uh, mobilizing factor as far as, uh, not mobilizing, but an organizational uh, factor. It gets everybody together um, and sets it at a certain day. That also does give you the issue with the government knows it's coming, then they can respond. And um, Ben Ali, he, he responds heavily uh, with this first protest. And then on January 6th, you have 95% of the country's lawyers protest the treatment of um, some of the detained lawyers from the first one. Uh, so things are quickly rattling out of control because of social media passing around and they're worried about protests breaking around the country. They're not just localized. Um, they're around Tunisia. They start making arrests of IT professionals, social people on social media. Um, so they're trying to scoop up everything and um, use the repressive methods that have been successful in the past. But 
it's unsuccessful. It does not work. He eventually leaves um, real quickly. Finally, if you look at this, the protests start really December 27th, and by the 14th, he's on a plane to Saudi Arabia in exile. And then you have elections within 60 days. That is a really truncated time frame. And I want to actually jump back a sec. You were talking about kind of the digital components to all of this and how yeah. in Tunisia it was YouTube and Egypt it was Facebook. So that obviously seems like a component of why this is happening right now is because of the new kind of widespread use of these social media networks. When it comes to... I mean, I, I guess the question is, how are they doing that? Is this because suddenly everybody has cell phones and they're, are they able to get around government censorship or is there no government censorship? How are they able to transmit this stuff to each other in a way that they were not able to just before that? Yeah, it's one, it's access, availability and affordability. You know, you can capture stuff on your phone now. And that's when you go to these countries. And Tunisia, it's a small country, but it has a relatively, um, you know, it's a sophisticated population there. And they're, you know, savvy with devices. Um, censorship, yeah, there is censorship that would take place in Tunisia, that took place in Egypt. Iran is one country that we won't be talking about, but they have developed a really effective, instead of um, censoring stuff and blocking certain sites, they are able to block it so that there's not a lot of information that gets outside the country. They, they, um, they put what are essentially cell phone blockers in place that keep people from communicating through that, through um, digital media, that from seeing the effect that it can have. And I'm not saying it's the sole reason. And, and, and some people say that the digital component has been overplayed, or some people say it's been underplayed. I think you just have to take it at face value. It did have an effect. It do, It is effective because you need to have all these people talking to each other in order to coordinate, okay, where are we going to show up to protest? <laughs> so you have the communication. Yeah, you don't want to over overplay it. You don't want to give you know the Twitter corporation credit for <laughs> the uprising across the Middle East or something. But yeah. there is something to be said about this, just having a method of communication, whether it's Twitter or Facebook or whatever, being able to communicate to each other and get somehow or another getting around government attempts to block that communication is, of course, going to be vital to any type of protest movement like this. It's It can happen without it. I mean, people have been protesting against government policies since the beginning of time. But when you're talking about doing a mass movement with more than 50 guys that show up on a street corner, if you want to have people in the thousands, you're going to have to have some sort of way of communicating and coordinating with people. To, to and, and the cell phones, all that, uh, are the convenient way to do it, as long as you can get around the government censorship and all that. And it gives you coordination in between cities, so you're not just localized in cities where um, right. uh, where the government can crack down. You know, they, they become they start to look spontaneous um, because they're just popping up all over the place. But, you know, there is communication that <laughs> they're not using carrier pigeons. So right. <laughs> that would be amazing. Yeah. One of the other connections that you brought up that I think is important to discuss is the religious connection, because yeah. in the West, there's often this conflation of issues and this this desire to believe that these revolutions in the Middle East are a result of people uprising against oppressive and dictatorial dictatorial practices of strict Islamic rulers and really downplay the role that religion plays in actually facilitating some of these protests and revolutions as well. Or, you know, in the case of a group like the Muslim Brotherhood coming to actually be elected into office, it also brings up 
questions of, well, what role does religion play in everyday life, but also what role does religion play in democracy? And what should the world do if, say, a far-right or radical party legitimately takes control of a government through a democratic election? Is yeah. there, do we allow that to happen? Do we have any say in that happening? Do we allow the process to play itself out where if democracy continues within that country, then people can actually vote this party that they voted in out. So I know that there's a lot to unpack with those questions, but I think that we really can't discount the role of religion in this and really need to figure out what role that played in a lot of these protests. That That is a great point, and I think it really kind of pushes us towards Egypt because I think it's a perfect case example of looking at uh, the role of religion, whether it's during the actual protests or it's after the protests. You have to look at both countries. They Tunisia, as well as Egypt, they were both secular. Okay, they were, um, Religion was not, and that was one of the big arguments against both of those. Let's face it, going back, Ben Ali and his predecessor um, clamped down on the Islamic community and clerics and individuals that they thought would keep them away from the path of secularization. Okay, or they would see it as, um, you know, modernization to a certain degree. So that country was Egyptian government. It's been secular since, you know, Nasser wrote. It's been secular for the longest of time. And yes, there are elements and there are elements written into all the constitutions that you'll see dotting around the Middle East that will have something about um, the role of Islam. But it defines the role of Islam and religion within that society. And usually it's not exclusionary as well. It doesn't leave people out of the system based on their religion. So moving to Egypt, I mean, what makes Islam? And I think this is one of the things that people will get confused with when they look at the Iranian revolution, is that that was also a revolution where you had all sectors of society rising up against the Shah of Iran, including the religious sector and the clerics. In Egypt, there was a party, found, the Muslim Brotherhood, as you alluded to, it was founded in 1928. It's headed by Hassan al And what, it, over time, what it's been able to do is it's um, created a very strong political cohesion. Sometimes they've been in exile groups. Um, right now, there are members in exile in Turkey, but it was able to, in the post-Mubarak age, quickly mobilize itself and be able to um, get itself to the ballot boxes, preach a message that they want. They they had a, a coherent message that was being delivered to the people. Now, was it the same message as their actual actions? That becomes a little bit of a question, and I think that's why the country eventually did rise up against the Muslim Brotherhood, um, because of the there was going to be too much religion, um, it, where it was going to be exclusionary. They were going to be cutting out minority ethnic groups, religious groups primarily, uh, such, such as the Coptic Christians, out of any type of political process. And the whole Arab Spring and the people that were getting into the streets, they went there to fight against what was a dictatorial regime. And they started to see what was a, somewhat of a constitutional grab and an election grab by the Morsi government. And that led to the, the population uh, rising up and really, um, and then the army ended up stepping in. You see with Egypt, there was an attempt to really push the religious factor 
there uh, with the post formation of the government, especially when it came to the drafting of the Constitution, when people saw what was going in it, that's when the country just could not handle it. And you had millions in the streets um, protesting for two days. That made uh, the Arab Spring event look small in comparison. You see, Egypt has really kind of straddled this and tried to figure out what role it will play, um, what role Islam will play uh, within um, that society. And um, there is a role, but it shouldn't be a dominant role in, gov in, in government as, as, let's say, the Egyptian people see it. They basically, if I could put it in my terms, and this is my summation of it, they didn't want to see a repeat the Sunni version of an Islamic Republic of Iran. There were labor unions, uh, all segments of society rose up, and they weren't the religious elements. It wasn't ideologically driven, but the Muslim Brotherhood was by far the most organized and able to get people to the ballot box. And then in the military was sitting in the backgrounds, trying, background, trying to preserve its own status and really kind of playing along with the Muslim Brotherhood and um, helping them until the people eventually rose up. So Adrian, I think that's a you know that's a really great segue from a general history of of what's been going on or what was going on in Egypt and Tunisia um, and the background in Egypt and looking at some of the political factors. Let's transition into a conversation about Mubarak, who was a key figure in yeah. during this whole event. Yes. Well, he took over after the assassination of Anwar Sadat in um, 1981 at a military parade. And um, he was a member of the Air Force, another uh, military leader, and that that was what you had in Egypt. You know, it's Nasser followed by um, Sadat, and then then you're going to have uh, Mubarak take his place. And Mubarak um, ruled from right up until he was ousted. Beginning of his rule, you know, he's from the Air Force, uh, military man, but he made took some, a lot of the same measures that uh, were taken in Tunisia where he built up his own security apparatus and uh, the violence that happened with um, the Egyptian Arab Spring was all due to his uh, security services. It wasn't the army firing on people, it was the, his military police, his apparatus that he had built up to instill a fierce society um, with the population. Um, He's not. He was never seen as a Nasser. Uh, he was never seen as basically being a man of the people that had the um, the best interests of the people in heart. Uh, over time, he had become more belligerent with Sadat. One of the key achievements was signing the Camp David Accords and um, peace between Egypt and Israel, which had been main combatants in the '67 War, the '73 War. Um, had a heavy loss of life and um, loss of land as well. So with with, um, with Nasser in the mil and, and Mubarak transitioning into that um, military role, he just uh, you know he kept he kept the military practices. He was not seen as a Nasser. He was not seen as a guy who was looking out for the best interests of the people. He was looked at as being an autocrat that sat at the top with very little. Now, there were political parties, but there was, you know, the votes, the elections were always unfair if they did hold elections, if he did hold elections. He was a very rich man, um, and it started to look like this was going to be more of a succession-type issue uh, where Mubarak was getting old. He was, some people may, and James, you may remember, him sitting in behind jail bars 
in a hospital bed with an IV drip next to him. Um, yep. So, you know, he was getting old. And the, and the whole belief was that everybody just assumed that his son, Gamal, um, or he's referred to often as Jimmy uh, Mubarak, was just going to be the next person in line, and he was going to take control. And I think people started to see that this is not somebody that we wanted to pass it down. And they, he built up um, a system where, you know, it's somewhat of a kleptocracy where when the financial constraints hit the country, he made sure that it didn't affect him or his closest allies and the people that he had drawn in closer to, with him. And that's, you know, his immediate circle. But that immediate circle grows smaller and smaller and smaller over time, especially when you use the, the methods of, uh, that he used to keep people in control. Then three leaders, three military leaders. Um, then Morsi was the first civilian leader elected. And then now you have al-Sisi, who came from the military, who was a military man. And now he's a leader. Now he stepped down from the military, but I'll leave it at that. So with Mubarak getting old, so where, where do we go from here? You, you mentioned that, I mean, we've got Morsi coming to power with the Muslim Brotherhood. Um, what do they do? How do how they differ from the old ways of doing things? And then what happened to those folks? There was a big question about how to proceed after Mubarak left. Do we call elections right away? It seemed like the military had control and the Muslim Brotherhood was the most, um, as far as on the civilian side, they were the best organized. And then you have all the other different groups, such as labor unions, lawyers, teachers, whoever, maybe forming this whole other group. So you basically had three different groups with them. Uh, with the military being there on top. And the military was just maintaining and trying to seek control and making sure that things didn't get out of hand during the transitionary period. So there was a big fight over whether they should um, draft a new constitution first, and that was coming from the, 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 the protest group that was not the Muslim Brotherhood, that coalition of groups. And then you had the Muslim Brotherhood that was saying, well, let's draft a constitution first, and then once we draft that constitution, then we'll have presidential elections. There became a, a major issue there in the Morsi government, and they eventually had a nationwide referendum, and um, it was decided that they would hold elections first and then create a new constitution. This ran contrary to that uh, coalition of other groups. They were worried that they had elected a person into power without having a clear vision and the constitution of where the country is going, and that it should have been more, uh, a better process. In that first presidential election, the Morrissey government won a plurality. Um, his party and the coalition that he formed won a plurality of seats. It wasn't even close. They had an organization of... You know, I forget how many seats that, but it was a, a clear victory for them. What they started to do within the government was started to work on the Constitution. And uh, drips and drabs were coming out as far as what was coming out, as far as the Constitution, what it was going to look like, the role of religion, and what role that was going to take. And then people got to see the Muslim Brotherhood actually ruling the country for a while. And if you look at the reports and you look at uh, security reports, it was... The economy, the economy, and now after a revolution, you can't expect your economy to come out gangbusters, especially when it's struggling going into it. But tourism plays a big part of that economy, and all of a sudden it was viewed that uh, tourism wasn't as safe. 
um, because there wasn't that strong military control. There was a belief that the economy was was struggling, uh, that there were going to be constitutional provisions put in there that were going to cut out and be exclusionary towards certain religious groups. And so um, that's where you have a lot of people finally um, stood up and uh, against the Morsi government. The government was given two days. The Morsi government was given two days. And it was really a drumbeat over the uh, course of a year where people were not happy with the rule of the Muslim Brotherhood. And then eventually they, uh, the people rose up. Army gave them two days to say, listen, get the country in order. Um, come back on some of your demands, what you're putting in the Constitution here. And they they were unwilling to make any concessions, and that's when the military stepped in. So that brings us to our current president of Egypt, with it, which is President Sisi. So, and I suppose if we had to draw everything together with the Morrissey government, we could say that, you know, the lessons that we learned are that the Morrissey government said, please, please, please let me get what I want. He got everything now, and heaven knows the country's miserable now. Yeah, he got that was sorry that I couldn't help but make a a Smiths slash Morrissey joke. Yeah, I I, I love this. (laughs) When it came to discussing the Morrissey government, I knew that was coming. I apologize. It had to happen. Brings me back to my teen years. (laughs) It brings Um, me back to yesterday when I was listening to the Smiths. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, myself as well. Yeah, it's um, I think what the Muslim Brotherhood found out that it was a lot easier to protest the rule rule and act as an opposition force to a dictator and then actual governance were two completely different things and it was going to be a very difficult transition anyway even if you have the most gifted of individuals it is going to it was going to be a difficult transition and um, they just kept on shooting themselves in the foot Um, so that allowed for the cc government to come back in and so you have um, a person that is again, from the military. Tourism is up. He's repaired relations with some of the countries that have were alienated during the Mubarak era and then through the Morsi transition. There was just instability. Um, so he's repaired some of those relationships. He's repaired the relationship with Israel that was kind of on the decline under Mubarak. And I had mentioned, I was starting to mention that and then I completely lost my train of thought when I was talking about the 67 and 73 war. Is that 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 peace treaty that Camp David Accords is where Mubarak was also becoming very belligerent towards Israel, and then um, the Morsi government um, was seen as um, um, Hamas is um, the Muslim Brotherhood, so uh, Israel kind of read between the lines that it's not going to be a friendly government with us either, and then um, Morsi has now stepped in, and uh, I mean um, Sisi, General El Sisi, now President El Sisi. Mohammed um, El he stepped in and, uh, you know, he's tried to restore security. They've got porous borders. Uh, you look at the Sinai Peninsula, them and Israel have been running joint operations to cut down. There's been a lot of what you call, um, you know, smuggling lines for groups such as ISIS, Al-Qaeda, Israel, as well as Egypt are working together. And they've also got a problem on their other border with Libya, which is still in a really, in a sta- it's in a state of civil war. Um, so the, there are just a lot of challenges that Egypt is facing right now from a security standpoint, from an economic standpoint, from a domestic um, standpoint. Uh, it's um, we're in a difficult spot. It seems as though 
the, elections uh, are being honored. Um, and, but, you know, I'm not going to say that civil liberties aren't being violated. I can't say that because that would be foolish to say that. But it, let's say it's not, it's not what the Mubarak government had become. And there seems to be more transparency. Yeah, what you were saying before about how it's a whole lot easier to protest than it is to govern. I mean, that's that's obviously true everywhere, and it's outside the scope of this podcast to talk about what's happening in the United States, but there are some uh, parallels there. But when you're talking about uh, the new government with CC, does CC kind of embody a kind of conservative trying to go back to the old days of Mubarak, or is he trying to embrace what the protests were all about back in 20? 11 2012 2013 was is he a product of the protest or is he trying to kind of forge this middle ground between the protest what the protesters wanted versus the old ways of doing things where they had stronger security less civil rights whereas the you know the protesters kind of wanted maybe the opposite i think he's really i mean he does have the main threat of the muslim brotherhood and they're they're still have a vast network within Egypt. And um, so as far as security with them, um, no, he's not going to play nicely with the Muslim Brotherhood. And their top leadership is an exile in Turkey where uh, Recep Erdogan is um, sheltering them. So with that segment of the population, with the Muslim Brotherhood, he sees them as a threat. But I do think that in the last elections, um, somewhat confirm it. Now, you will not see, with the last elections, you won't see um, members of the Muslim Brotherhood voting. You won't see Islamist parties voting because they view um, the government as being illegitimate. So that's going to skew the percentages from the last vote uh, where CC uh, was reelected. But you do see that there were reforms put in place. There were constitutional guarantees. And that he's trying to really, he's not moving into like, the, to use a French revolution, he's not moving into the directory. He's trying to embody the actual spirit of the revolution. Um, he knows what the people were upset about. Um, and he wants to make it, I'm not going to say he's a benevolent, benevolent leader, but he, he really does want to improve Egypt's situation instead of just lining his pockets, which... That's what Mubarak became. That's what Ali became. That's what, when we look at Gaddafi in Libya, that's what he became, Saleh, Assad. They all became dictators that were lining their pockets. Where their predecessors had been kind of viewed as, you know, moving the country in the right direction and keeping principles in place. The reason why we grouped these two together, Egypt and Tunisia, is because they, they bear a lot of similarities. The revolutions, they were these gentlemen, they, well, call them gentlemen, Mubarak and Ben Ali, they were overthrown in a fortnight, or a little over a fortnight. And uh, you had a lot of the same factors that were in play with unemployment, rising prices, middle class frustration, um, repressive regimes, um, censorship um, plays a role, freedom of speech, being able to criticize your government. Those are the things that were being crushed before, and uh, these are the things that they were, that uh, the people rose up against. They were successful. The leaders left. Tunisia, they have a government in place. I'm not going to say it's stable, but it's a smaller country. And it has, a, you know, the central government isn't that strong. There is a threat from some bad actors in the region. Egypt went through a little more of a drawn-out process, and this was never going to be a pretty process. Um, but it looks like there is some stability in Egypt right now. 
if you want to look at long-term prospects. I mean, Egypt's always going to be uh, the big player, and that's another reason why we looked at Egypt is that a lot of times whatever happens in Egypt, it's going to send waves throughout the Middle East, and it's, it's going to impact the world. Uh, you have the vital shipping ways, uh, the Suez Canal, access to oil, and I think uh, people are somewhat optimistic. Now, I'm sure there are people that will disagree that says that they're not moving in the correct path, but it looks as though things have kind of, you know, Tunisia is a bit of a waiting game to see what will happen. Uh, Egypt seems like it's moving in the correct direction, but I'm not going to say that it's shifted all the way here. And then when we get to Libya and Yemen, which will be the next podcast, we'll see where it hasn't been quick. It's been a long, protracted, ugly struggle that has now evolved into civil wars that are uncovered um, compared to the Syrian civil war just because of um, the amount of bloodshed in the Syrian civil war. So all in all, when you look at the Arab Spring, Egypt and Tunisia uh, out of the countries that we're looking at are on the path of stability. And what we'll see with Egypt is it's going to spur on the next part of um, some of the proximate immediate factors is that you're going to have a, this demonstration effect. And that's where I talk about the waves. You can't really, I don't know if you could say the Tunisian um, revolution inspired the Egyptian revolution, Arab Spring, uh, but you can definitely say that the Arab Spring in Egypt influenced everybody else in the Middle East. Because there are countries that we're not even covering and don't have time to cover unless we want to turn this into 15 episodes. Um, <laughs> they had their own little mini version of the Arab Spring. That's really interesting because you've touched on some really key connections and points. And even though we're not, no longer discussing the Morrissey government, um, you can either look at these figures as charming men or handsome, handsome devils. But uh, what we can take away is that these two revolutions left the rest of the region asking, how soon is now? Yes. And with that, so I will end my Morrissey connections. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not, you know, it's there's promise in what was occurring, but it, it is definitely a, a somber topic. And, you know, I, I jest, but, um, <laughs> you know, it, it really is by introducing the Morrissey connection, but it really is an important topic that we, we're unpacking here. Um, and it, we really are grateful for you for taking the time to record this podcast series because I think, you know, it not only helps students to understand, but a larger audience as well, that there are distinctions within each of these revolutions, but there are also key factors that connect them and there's inspiration that comes along with regional revolutions that impact other areas and other people in the region as well. Absolutely, James. That's Adrian, great. thank you so much. We look forward to the next podcast. As am I. Thank you, gentlemen. And thank you all for joining us today. Join us again in two weeks as we move on to discuss the Arab Spring in Yemen and Libya. If you have any questions or comments on this podcast, or suggestions for future episodes, please send me an email at workinghistorians at gmail.com. For James Fennessy and Adrian Calamel, I am Rob Denning. Goodbye. And will all of their girlfriends be in a coma also? Oh. Yeah. I had to get one in. I had to get one. That was, yeah. Shoplifters of the world reunite. Exactly.